and welcome to the Church Times podcast. In his new book, Bound to be Free, The Paradox of Freedom, the Bishop of Kensington, Dr Graham Tomlin, discusses the fraught concept of freedom in contemporary culture. He finds a fatal flaw at the heart of the secular vision of freedom and argues that the Christian vision of freedom brings together both personal fulfilment and the health of community life. Ed Thornton spoke to him about the book. Uh, Bishop Graham, we're talking about your new book, Bound to be Free, The Paradox of Freedom. Just say a little bit about how the book came about and and who it's aimed at. I guess I've been uh, thinking about the concept of freedom for quite some time. I've always been slightly troubled by the idea that Christian faith talks a lot about freedom. Um, the Bible talks about that and freedom in Christ. And yet at the same time, you know, we talk about commandments and uh, obedience to the will of God. And we talk about, you know, restraints on our, our freedom. And so how do those two fit together? So I've always been sort of um, thinking about that area. I guess the, the immediate spark for the book came actually out of the um, Charlie Hebdo attacks a number of years ago. And I remember um, uh, there was a uh, this great sort of outcry against that um, uh, those attacks and people wanted to defend the sort of Charlie Hebdo approach and and while well, wanting to join that I, I, I there was a little bit in me that said actually do do I want to defend the freedom to offend others and to um uh, you know to 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 be um, as offensive as you like uh, towards others while at the same time not wanting to defend that kind of very restrictive very imposing your will upon others that you, that you find within Islamic fundamentalism so it seems to seem to me at that time we were stuck between a a kind of vision of secular freedom which had no boundaries, freedom to do exactly what you want, freedom to offend, freedom to harm other people, if you like, and on the other hand, a very restrictive form of social life or a vision of life which uh, gave very little sense of personal liberty at all. And was there a way between that? And what did, what did Christian faith have to say to it? And it's very topical, obviously, with Brexit and the election of Trump and a lot of talk of freedom, freedom mm. from forces outside our control or from elites and all that sort of thing. That's right. I think freedom is a it's a seminal idea in our culture. Has been for for for, for many many years. Um, you know, even right the way across the millennia. But particularly, I guess, in the last uh, few hundred years, you know, we have a particular view of freedom, and our primary view of freedom, I think, in our society is dominated by a, a sort of secular libertarian understanding of freedom. And it seems to me that you know, freedom is a is a something which everyone talks about. Politicians mm-hmm. talk about it. Social commentators talk about it. Religious people talk about it. Uh, but very often we assume a particular view of freedom, which actually comes from a very particular tradition of thinking about freedom, which is this social, um, secular, libertarian uh, vision of freedom. Um, and I guess I want to go behind that and say, well, what, what are the roots of that? And actually, what does a Christian vision of freedom have to offer that's different from that? And in the book, you, you set out some of the architects of freedom who've influenced our ideas of freedom. So um, like Locke, Rousseau, Mill. Can you yep. say a little bit about those ideas and how they fed into modern ideas of freedom? Yeah. Well, I guess those three thinkers, I mean, you could add others as well, um, Thomas Hobbes, um, mm. you know, Emmanuel Kant, and um, you know, René Descartes and others. But I focus on those three because they seem to be very influential in the way we think about um, freedom. John Locke, I think, is one who um, focuses upon the individual as the primary unit of, of life rather than society. And in a sense, you know, that uh, there should be no uh, restriction on the individual freedom, the individual who has the freedom to dispose of their own uh, goods and talents and time as they wish but at the same time there is a divine law that says that other, others have value as well so there must be limits on that freedom uh, so that we don't transgress upon other other, other people's uh, freedom. Um, Rousseau I think is someone who uh, champions the um, the freedom of the natural state going back to a kind of natural state without civilization. Locke has quite a positive view of civilization. Uh, he thinks that's a good thing 
uh, because it structures our freedom so we don't tread on each other's toes, as it were. Uh, Rousseau, I think, has a very negative view of, of civilization, and actually freedom is found by going back to our natural desires, going back to the expression of those things, uh, throwing off sort of custom in those kind of ways. And Mill, I think, is the champion of individual uh, individuality, uh, the idea that each individual person must be free to express themselves in whatever they, they want, and the sort of social pressure to conform mm. is a, a very negative thing for him. And you can understand that, because in Victorian society there was a huge pressure to conform. And so I think those three people have been, those three, three thinkers have been profoundly influential on our, on our views of freedom in the, in, the, in the modern world. Do you think to some extent in modern kind of liberal <coughs> discourse, particularly around human rights, um, often seems to me Mill is the thinker, who's, perhaps his thinking is accepted most uncritically without even thinking. I heard Peter Tatchley the other day saying, of course, freedom is about being able to do whatever you want as long as you don't harm others. And you hear that a lot exactly. now. That, yeah. And that goes yeah. right back to Mill, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Mill is the... Uh, is the his, his principle of harm, um, which is you know, echoed in that statement, uh, is right at the heart of Mill's thinking. You know, he says that um, uh, you, yes, you must, the individual must be free to express themselves, to do as they wish, as long as they do not harm other people. And you can sort of see some sense in that. I mean, I, I think the questions I have about it are, number one, is there the principle of harm, especially in a world of social media where everything we do impacts upon other people. Uh, privacy is almost non-existent now um, is there such a thing as things that do not harm other people because our, our actions our words impact other people in far in more ways than we ever imagined I think more significantly however my my real sort of critique of that position on freedom that freedom is the freedom to do as I want as long as I don't tread on anybody else's toes is that it sets the other person up as at best a limitation or at worst a threat to me and my freedom so in my relationship with, with you or with anyone else, uh, I end up viewing that other person as someone who actually stops me doing what I would really like to do, uh, or uh, who might tread on my toes and therefore I have to resist them. It sets up relationships of opposition, of conflict, uh, of suspicion, which is why I think we have so much conflict and opposition and suspicion in our, in our culture at the moment. And in some ways it's getting worse rather than better. And you was quite intrigued by the presence of Iris Murdoch and Simone Weil. Do you say, I mean, neither uh, conventionally, well, Iris Murdoch, not a professing Christian at all, mm. and Simone Weil, quite unconventional, unorthodox, yeah. Yeah. believer in God, I yeah. suppose. But they both bring hints of freedom and a critique of those earlier conceptions of freedom. Is that right? Yeah, they seem to be quite important transitional voices into a Christian understanding of freedom. I mean, Iris Murdoch, I think, is a really interesting thinker on freedom because she, she uh, amounts a whole series of arguments against the, the kind of secular libertarian view of freedom. Freedom is kind of directionless freedom that is, is you know, whatever you want it to be, doing whatever you want to do. Because she sees, uh, in her, her work, the sovereignty of good. She sees this thing called goodness mm -hmm. and that freedom has to be oriented towards something, towards goodness. It's not just freedom to do whatever you want. It's freedom towards something that is, that is truly good. Now, she can't take a step beyond that to talk about God. Uh, she doesn't personalise good. Um, she struggles to do that, which is why she's not a Christian as such. But it's just seemed to be a really interesting uh, set of arguments that was pointing towards freedom as having a purpose uh, rather than just kind of random freedom to do whatever I choose to, to, to do with my with my, my freedom and time and talents and so on. And um, so I'm a you know, deeply sort of philosophical, spiritual um, writer uh, who also has a similar kind of idea, uh, an idea of, um, of the importance of discipline, the discipline of, of, of the mind and the body mm. uh, in um, the exercise of, of freedom. 
And so both of them were voices that were not, not from a particularly Christian, Orthodox Christian perspective, raising real questions about that tradition of freedom that you get in, in Locke and Mill and Rousseau and others. I'm right in thinking that then leads the way into... Is Paul come next or is it Augustine in the book? Uh, St. Paul, Paul comes first, yeah. St. Paul comes first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quite right, because that was exactly the New Testament. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, you talk about how for St. Paul freedoms, often freedom from hmm. sort of the powers of evil and sin and also yeah. freedom for yeah. love and service to others. Sure, yeah. um, I was also intrigued by the um, summary you give of Douglas Campbell's Hmm. Um, scholarship on sure. Paul, which is yeah. I mean, it's quite controversial in yeah. some circles, isn't yeah. it? Could you exactly. say a little bit about that and how you found that helpful thinking about freedom? Yeah, I mean, Douglas Campbell's take on Paul not universally re- recognised by everyone, um, and I, did, I don't in the book want to get into some of the details no, sure. sort of Pauline scholarship. I'm not a Pauline scholar. I don't want to get into that too much. But I think what is I find helpful about his approach is his emphasis upon Paul's focus on deliverance mm. as the centre of his his theology, and I think you know, what Douglas Campbell does his version of Paul is one Paul is the apostle of freedom. Uh, he talks about deliverance from the powers uh, that hold us down, the powers of the you know the Stoikeia, the, um, the the powers of this age, and that, how that idea is much more central in Paul than we sometimes think it is. You know, when you read Paul with that. Uh, lens you see that idea of freedom is very strong in Paul you know for freedom Christ has set us free I think for Paul you know freedom in in a first century Greek or Roman culture freedom had a resonance that it doesn't have for us it was freedom from slavery there were slaves and they were free and so to be set free was to be set free from something but not just set free into a kind of emptiness but set free for a purpose because if you were a freed slave freed by your master you were then free to give yourself in in free service to that master rather than in sort of bonds servant nature so you didn't have to do it but you voluntarily uh, chose to give your service to that master so he has a a whole kind of um, you know narrative of freedom that colors his way of thinking about freedom and so I think you know Paul lays the foundation of a Christian view of freedom by that sense that that we are freed from all kinds of powers that would stop us being all that God has created us to be you know powers that enslave us powers that constrict us but in Christ in through the through his incarnation crucifixion and resurrection Christ has set us free from the powers that hold us down that restrict us from all that God has for us but again it's not a kind of freedom into nothing freedom Christ has set us free but do not use your freedom as as an opportunity for license but instead give yourselves in love for one another so it's freedom not to choose anything you like but it's freedom to love and that's a radically different conception of freedom to the sort of secular libertarian model. Because I guess you're saying it comes particularly towards the end of the book where you talk about freedom from ourselves and actually this idea that we're this mm. free individual as long as people don't inhibit yeah, what we want to do sure. is, yeah. is a bit of a myth. And actually there's all kinds of forces that... Exactly. And I think, you know, we're aware of that in our culture. I mean, you know, Paul thought of that, you know, in slavery to the, the powers of the of the world, you know, the Stoikea and so on I was talking about. I guess we would put that in terms of you know how free are we? We think we are free to choose this particular brand of computer mm. or that particular brand of perfume or breakfast cereal, but we are profoundly influenced by the the media, the the um, the marketing, the adverts that bombard us all the time and mm. shape our choices. You know, we think we go into a book and, and go into a bookshop and buy a book, but well, the books that are placed on the mm. shelves in front of you are placed deliberately by you know often with financial backing as well. So we're not as free to choose as we think. You know, are we free from the gadgets that we that we use all the time? You know, we are. In, most of us are profoundly enslaved to our mobile phones or our laptops or our, our tablets. And so you know, we can understand that sense that we are we are enslaved in all kinds of ways. We're not we're not these 
mythically free beings, perfectly able to choose whatever we like, uninfluenced by any outside influence. We are far more influenced by outside influence that we don't even recognise half mm. the time. So I think that's the, you know, that, that's a, a quite important sense, you know, recognising that we aren't as free as we like to think we are. But I think the other part of it is that, that you know, what is the purpose of that freedom? You know, is it freedom to do what I want? Because I guess Christian faith would say that what I want is part of the problem. Because so often the desires that arise from my heart are actually for things that would destroy me or my relationships or my planet or my environment or my community. That actually the desires that arise from the heart are not to be unquestioned. They are to be um, disciplined in, in all kinds of ways. That's what Christian faith says about desire. Christian faith is not you know, uncritical of, 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 of what sometimes, say, Rousseau would call natural human desire. So we don't know our, what's good for us in, in some ways. We desire things that are bad for us and bad for others. That's right, yeah. I think that's a kind of observable thing. You know, we, we desire prosperity, we desire ease of use, and so we create all this plastic that makes our life um, you know, easy and, uh, and more convenient. But the result of that is the clogging up of the, the oceans and the planet and, the, and the, um, mm. uh, the environment that we have. Just one tiny example of how our desires... You know, not always intentionally, but actually can lead in quite destructive directions. Unless we recognise that, we can't really begin to develop a kind of uh, a true form of freedom. You, you said in the memorial service at St Paul's Cathedral, um, the memorial service for the Grenfell Fire, that there was this extraordinary coming together of the community, love of neighbour, mm. this, this kind mm. of extraordinary response. Um, I mean, where you think that came from? I mean, faith groups are very much part of that, but so mm. were people of, mm. of no sure. faith. What yeah. was driving that, do you think? Well, I think the Christian anthropology would, I think, say that we are a strange mixture of desires. Hidden deep within us is the desire for God, the desire to love God and to love the neighbour, because that's what we were made for. And occasionally that breaks out, particularly drawn by, by need, by tragedy, when you know pity and, and sorrow and, and sympathy really is evoked within us. At the same time, we have all kinds of other desires for our own personal gain and prosperity and um, competition and the kind of things we've just been talking about that can be more destructive. So there is this strange mixture of desire within us. And so I think in moments like that, that's when you see that God-given humanity, that God-given longing for, for something bigger, uh, for God, for, for each other, to give ourselves to one another and a recognition that actually our social life works far better when we are focused not so much on our own needs but on the needs of our neighbour. And that's what I think you saw happening at that moment. But it doesn't last. That was the point I was trying to make a little bit in that talk, was that we saw that for a few days, but quite quickly we revert back to our comfort zones. We refer back to our suspicion of each other. Um, for a brief moment, then we forgot to be suspicious of each other. We forgot to be fearful of, the, of our neighbour who looked different. Um, and we went back to our default position, which is suspicion and fear. How do you think, as a society where different faiths, no faith, living together side by side, but often living lives quite separately, rich and poor and things, how, how can we overcome that suspicion and fear and, and use that moment yeah. as a way yeah. to, in sure. a different way? Well, I think, I think as Christians, we have to offer what we can offer to a vision of social life. I guess what I'm saying in, in the book is uh, that that secular libertarian vision of freedom which actually sets us up in opposition to each other, sets us up as limitations or threats to one another's freedom. It gives a certain degree of personal liberty, but it doesn't do social cohesion very well. And the trick in all human society is to try and square that circle. How do you do personal liberty and social cohesion at the same time? And the secular libertarian vision does reasonably well on the personal liberty. You know, you can choose what you want and do what you want with it. But it sets us up in opposition to each other. It doesn't really create social cohesion. And I think I want to say it 
Christian vision of freedom is very different. Christian vision of freedom is freedom from all that would restrict us from being all that we are created to be. Freedom from that peer pressure, advertising pressure, freedom from all those powers that would stop us becoming what we're meant to be. But not freedom into a, a kind of limitless, empty space, but freedom for a particular purpose, which is to become people capable of love for God and love for each other. That's the purpose of Christian freedom. And that has to be learnt over time. And so there's disciplines involved. There is a focus to it. And I think that's what we, we offer, a vision of, of, of um, social life, where uh, we are not focused upon our own personal prosperity, our own um, national or personal you know, gain, or uh, you know, how well we are doing, regardless of what others do. But actually a vision of, of life where we, you know, in relation to God, we learn the freedom to be, and the, if you like, the, um, the security to be able to reach out to, to my neighbour, to be more focused upon my neighbour's needs than I am on my own. And I think that vision is a vision of social life that does bring social cohesion, because if you have a network of people who are all looking out for each other's needs, not their own needs, that builds social cohesion. You know, I'm going to worry too much about my own needs because my neighbour's looking out for those because I can look out for theirs. And so you can see, begin to see a vision of a, of a society where people, where it can bring both social cohesion, but it also brings personal fulfilment because it enables us to become what we were meant to be, people who love God and love our neighbours. Does that come from the, the ground up, or is it something that can be legislated for by government? I think there's a limit to what um, government can do. Uh, it seems to me that um, in the response to Grenfell, there's obviously a lot of political issues have been, been raised, and some of the answers may be political, but I think there's wider, there's bigger than political issues. It's one of the reasons, I think, why we did the service last week was in some ways to put, put the whole thing into a bigger context than just politics mm-hmm. uh, or or community relations it was actually in the context of a cathedral in the context of god in the context of a sort of spiritual context a spiritual world and so i think there is this is to do with the spiritual resources that nourish that kind of life and i think one of my fears about our society because we've lost the christian narrative that holds us together we've lost that sense of um of loving god and loving our neighbor as being the kind of things that hold us together we've got nothing really to replace it in that way i think the new atheism in some ways is a is a, is a method of, of kind of cultural self cultural suicide it's, it's kind of destroying the the, the christian it's trying to destroy the christian narrative that holds society together but doesn't really replace it with anything mm. better or even anything at all and so therefore leaves us in this very fragmented state where we have no common bond to God that, that, that relates us to one another. And so we struggle to find the common bonds that hold us, hold us together. And therefore we, we get this sort of fragmented view of, of social life. So I think it, it is, it's, it's, there, are some, some, there are political questions to be asked about it, but they're much wider than political questions. It's the, it's the where do we find the spiritual resources to become the kind of people capable of God for love for God and love for one another. And I want to say Christian faith... And churches are places where we learn that, where communities can learn what that means to live a life of loving God and loving one's neighbour. And if churches can become that and people can be drawn to that life, they can learn that and that, it, that might begin to seed a new way of living together in our societies. Bishop Sarah Mullally nominated as the next yep. Bishop of London to see Richard Charters. Um, yep. You've been in this diocese a long time and um, know, know well and you're obviously one of the bishops here. Just mm. your reaction to that really. Yeah, I was delighted to hear about Sarah's nomination i think she'll bring uh she'll, she'll be something very different from what we've had before mm. you know bishop richard was his own self and was um a remarkable leader in all kinds of ways bishop sarah will bring something very different from that i think it's um you know the experience she brings from the kind of world outside the church will be a, a great help in, in helping to um to hold together a very kind of complex 
organisation like the Diocese of London, as she's done within within the NHS uh, as well. She's um, she's she's managed and held together and led uh, an organisation in that same way in the past. But I think she also brings a, a, a very profound faith to it as well, and something that that is. Um, is deeply rooted. I think it's you know when I've, I've spoken to, her, I've got that sense of someone who is deeply rooted in in the Christian faith, and she will she will bring that perspective. I think she'll be someone who will hold together some of the tensions that you find within the the, the diocese of London. Um, she's a, an ironic person, someone who um, has a vision for the whole of the church together. I think she's also got a vision for people on the on the margins and edges of society, which again is something I think we need here in London too. Sure, and with the, the some of the. Um issues in London with a lot of traditional Catholic parishes, mm. conservative evangelicals, mm. only you're confident that having a woman won't be too much for those people, but there can be arrangements to help them I mean, we, we have what we call the London Plan, yeah. which is um, which has served us well for a number of years as a way of holding together um, the different um, parts of the church. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a good structure, it's something that um, Bishop Sarah seems to be keen to continue to work with. And uh, yeah, my, I really do hope that, you know, clearly, you know, her, her appointment will raise questions and um, difficulties for some people within the church. But I hope the London plan is a structure that will enable us to to hold those tensions together within the church, you know, with um, Bishop Sarah leading us. Just one quick question. There's been a little bit of chatter on social media and from some people I speak to about, when you talk about the outside experience people have, some people say, well, we need to be careful of that because we need people who are theologians who've been priests for a long time. Um, they worry that there's this drift towards a more managerial mm. kind of, privileging of that experience over the kind of more reflective scholar sure. yeah. in the role. Do you have any thoughts on that as a theologian and a bishop? I mean, I think bishops are not on their own. I mean, in London, we have a college of bishops. Mm. Uh, Sarah is not the only bishop in London. So we do very much work as a, as a team. It seems to me you can't find everything in one person. Mm-hmm. You know, when you often read the descriptions of what people want in a, in a new bishop, it's almost impossible to find because you can't find everything in one one person. You know, holding together uh, and uh, leading a complex organisation like the Diocese of London will need all kinds of skills. And I, I think the skills she brings from her secular experience will be very valuable. I think we'd be very foolish to say we'd have nothing to learn from that kind of experience and that's going to be a very valuable gift to us. But there are others of us in the College of Bishops who can provide other parts of what's needed within Episcopal leadership within London. So I'm confident that together we can do what is needed uh, to, to, to bring that broad, you know, what, in terms of the leadership of the church in London, to bring, you know, we need, we need managerial leadership, uh, we need a deep faith, which I think Sarah has. We also need um, theological gifts, which we have within the College of Bishops, we need um, that sort of deep reflective nature, we have that, we need that, that entrepreneurial missional outlook, which we also have. So we need all those gifts, but they don't always have to be concentrated in one person. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.